0: This is Steady Habits, a Connecticut Mirror podcast. It's where we take a look at life here in the land of steady habits what works, what doesn't, and how to make things work just a little bit better. I'm John Dankosky. Thanks so much for joining me. Stanley Greenberg has been in the middle of Democratic Party politics for decades. His work as a pollster for Bill Clinton in 1992 helped to reshape the party following years of losing ground to Republicans. This year, Greenberg's been doing Zoom focus groups with some of these same types of voters, and he's hearing about health care as the issue that's most on people's minds once again. The white men that he's talking to, they're moving back toward Donald Trump in recent months, but the women aren't. In our wide-ranging conversation, Greenberg talks about what Democrats have learned over the years about populism, how he's surprised about what a big issue climate change is for voters, and he tells me he was pushing for Joe Biden to pick a different running mate. Greenberg talked to me from his office, which he seems to share with Congresswoman Rosa DeLauro, his wife. Her name came up on the Zoom account when we logged in. And as you'll hear, Stanley Greenberg has a squeaky office chair. Stan Greenberg, welcome to Steady Habits. Thanks so much for joining us. I really appreciate it.
1: I'm delighted to be on and talk about America. Well,
0: let's talk about America. But first, let's talk about something I've always wondered about. You call yourself and people always call you a democratic pollster. And I guess I should just ask, what exactly does a democratic pollster do? Like what's different between a democratic pollster and then just a garden variety pollster? (laughs)
1: Um, Being a pollster is very much linked to the kind of political partisan projects. And you don't, you know, you don't really share information and you come at it um, from a perspective that you, you know, you understand the goals of the people you're working for. So this isn't, I can be for anybody. I can be for any party, any candidate. Um, you know, I have a point of view within the Democratic Party, and have had you know through the decades of work that I've done. But you won't be trusted if you know if you're if you're just producing numbers that favor the Democrats. Uh, you know, I release publicly almost every you know survey that we do, and so I have the subject scrutiny uh, for it. And that Carl Rove said that. If he were trying to get the Republican back to be a sustainable party, that he'd create an organization like Democracy Corps, which is something James Carville and I created on the Democratic side, where you release subjective polling uh, that people trust. We'll we'll talk about
0: that. Subjective polling that people trust, but coming from a Democratic point of view. Maybe you can talk about threading that needle so that we understand a little bit better about how, how it works
1: okay and also by the way you're also tested by winning or being accurate and 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 the fact that this is not just you know in theory in almost all cases you're advising people on you know how they can you know have a sustainable you know project um and and win elections and uh if this all turns out to be hokey or you know just um you're not going to be in business and so you know i you know i you know i came into You know, democratic politics nationally. I started in New Haven, Connecticut. Um, uh, Teaching at Yale, um, created the company in my in my basement, Um, and you know did you know uh, did you know polling started actually with Chris Dodd. You know, many years ago, Um, he'd come look over the shoulders of the callers. You know, see if they were you know if they were giving him a fair shot. Um, But I anyway, but I started you know I started it uh, while I was I was teaching uh, at you know at Yale, Um, and. But I had a point, you know, point of view. I was trying to reform the Democratic Party, modernize the Democratic Party, um, and I had my views of, you know, we had two two problems facing the Democratic Party. You know, had they had lost their Southern base uh, when you flipped over civil rights, uh, and and they lost their suburban, you know, Catholic base. And you know, I was, you know, focused mo- mostly trying to figure out. You know, starting in Macomb County, Michigan, uh, you know, interviewing the focus groups, qualitative research, uh, you know, with voters uh, in the you know, Catholic suburbs, voters who had voted heavily for, you know, for, you know, for John Kennedy, uh, but had walked away, voted for Reagan. And I that's where I labeled the Reagan Democrats. Um, so I began doing research, you know, trying to understand Macomb County, these voters. Um, and, you know, when Bill Clinton um ran for president actually when he became head of the democratic leadership council you know and, and he was obviously successful in trying to win back voters in the south you know i was perceived to be successful actually at, you know, at people i advised did win elections in michigan um that's when i began advising him in his kind of last governor's race in arkansas and so i was part of his team uh but it was you know but it was out of trying to make the democratic party a viable party nationally they had lost so many national elections um you know uh, you know particularly you know since carter and reagan and so it was part of modernizing uh, the party but again the I, I had my ideas and my hypotheses but they, again it wouldn't have matter hmm. if you know they didn't you know bear out you know i you know i thought you know my theory was that you know people gave up on democrat they were frustrated with democratic party because they failed to battle for the you know the middle class and people who they perceived working hard and had good values. But they hadn't become Republicans. They had they were still angry at the Democrats, but they had not moved over to become Republicans. They didn't trust Ronald Reagan you know, particularly. They voted with for him in big numbers. Um, but they didn't really have his kind of business conservative point of view. You know, they you know they wanted, you know, someone who would actually have universal health care, deal with raising rising wages. But they wanted someone with the right values and believed in responsibility and hard work.
0: A pet peeve of mine right now as I look at political coverage this close to an election is we're always talking with undecided voters. And I listen to these undecided voters and I say, you're not undecided. That's, that's a yes. bunch of crap. So do undecided voters exist right now in America this close to an election?
1: No. I mean, b- I mean barely. I mean, there are... Uh, I mean, in our polls, first of all, if you if you if, if you have a quality poll, you know you have a lot of questions that you ask before you get to the vote questions, so people are comfortable. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of the of the surveys are kind of short, and that you know they so they ask the vote question you know pretty much in the in the front that produces more undecided. So I I will only have right now in the presidential race about you know about three percent you know undecided, but that doesn't mean there aren't voters that aren't going to be impacted. You know, by the election now, the and there's two kinds of impact. One kind is engagement. You know, so you had if you look back to 2016, uh, the you know actually you had kind of lowish turnout in the you know in the in the, in the cities and a lot of the Democratic base, uh, but white working class voters uh, were turning out first in the primaries. They were registering in bigger numbers, um, and they really you know you know, overperformed in terms of voting um, in, in western Pennsylvania and Michigan and Wisconsin in those states uh, that Trump carried, you know, he changed the, the character of the electorate by who he engaged. But then if you look at the midterm elections, you know, it was the Democrats who engaged the suburbs and particularly college educated women who were reacting against Trump. And so. The, the race, the numbers change, but not from undecided voter switching, but by people that, you know, uh, college educated you know, women turning out in much bigger numbers than it had ever in the midterm elections. Um, right now, everybody's going to turn out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I don't, so I don't, I think we're going to have the biggest you know, turnout in the history of presidential elections. Uh, I don't, you know, I don't believe right now that, you know, the Supreme Court decision will find that small group of evangelical Republicans were now going to say, finally, I'm going to go vote. They were, in my data, the group that was most intent on voting, you know, already. And, you know, everybody's off the chart, no matter who they are. And so I think you're going to have huge, you know, turnout. But there are voters that are impacted right now by figuring out Trump and Biden. So if I look at the last month from the beginning of the conventions, white working class men really have moved about 10 points, um, toward Trump, not the women. They have moved at all.
0: What uh, white working, and, white working class men.
1: Right. Um, and that was his base. And, you know, and that's a very, you know, that, that's, that's a very important part of what he's doing, battling on law and order, black lives matter, and those kinds of issues, you know, that's getting a, you know, getting a hearing, you know, and so that, you know, he won them amazingly by 48 points um in 2016 it, it it fell off in the midterms and it continued to fall off but it's moved back you know 10 points back to a 40 point margin right now so so
0: well let's talk about that and maybe what we missed last time and what you're seeing this time you you mentioned a couple factors uh during this time Donald Trump has been tweeting almost every day in all caps, law and order, and he talks about it. He talks about sending in troops into these lawless American cities, and he he demonizes and tries to criminalize anyone yep. attached yep. to the Black Lives Matter movement. Is yep. is that are those issues, Stan, the ones that are resonating with these white working class voters?
1: With white working class men. White uh, working class really men, exactly. exactly. Yeah, because there's there's gonna be a gender tsunami. In this election, that is, a you know a, a reaction against Trump that began with the women's march, and nothing I've seen, you know, has has changed the trajectory of it. And so, if you look within every group, so if you look at you know millennials, if you look at white millennials, uh, the men are kind of split even, the women have keep moving, and they're now over seventy percent, you know, you know, for buying. You know, and they weren't anywhere near because they were for Sanders. And so within every group, if you look at Hispanics, same thing's happening with women. Right now, if you look at the white working class, you know they are 44% of the country of registered vote. So they're a huge factor. You know, the men are 20%. And they really moved to Trump on this. But the women are actually more, are split on uh, Black Lives Matter. So the... <laughs> And, and the law and order issue. And they're not, they're not moving in the same way as the men. So it's working with the men in part, but he's still not back to where he was 16, but he's also driven away There's a huge price for that because that racism, you know, that hatred, that constant of conflict um, has driven away suburban voters, but it's also driven away white college educators, both men and women. One of the biggest shifts right now is that all college voters, you know, are turning, you know, against, you know, Trump? So you have, you know, young voters, college-educated, suburban, and women across the board, kind of either moving against him or holding, like the women, white working as women. But he has this, you know, this one group that he's able to move up to now. He's still not back to where he was in sixteen, but they've been moving. And that obviously will be the battle. You know, do you know? Do the w- women move too and respond to the? Uh, they don't look. They don't like the racism. They don't. You know. They don't like the hatred, divisiveness. You know. I've I've listened to focus groups in rural areas, and they they truly, they think there can be no real progress with this kind of polarization. So he, you know, hit his rallies, his strategies, as a target audience, his base, and some segments more broadly.
0: For the people that aren't part of this white working class aren't specifically white working class males right. i can imagine them watching this this election once again saying well here we are talking about these white working class men and what they care about meanwhile there's a whole group of people who aren't being asked necessarily what they care about and they may see a democratic party that that reacts to some of trump's rhetoric and moves toward a more centrist position than maybe they are comfortable with. What What are you hearing from black voters, from Latino voters in America right now about how they feel about that divide?
1: Well, first of all, I wouldn't. You know, the um, I wouldn't call. I'm not interested in the idea of the, that. There's that what's happening here is a centrist, you know, you know, left, right, and centrism. You know, what look, what he's succeeding on doing. Let me step back. White, white, not not just whites. All working class voters were screwed by the financial crisis. There's a huge crash. The government, the elites, you know, bail out the banks. Um, people, you know, with their mortgages, foreclosures, you know, they got nothing, and the country has never recovered. Uh, you know from what happened in the financial crisis um, and the. The failure of elites to attract the loss of wealth and, and inequality, and above all, what's happened to healthcare. And so you may think this is about, you know, the you know the the Obamacare and trying to repeal that. That's what Trump thinks. That's not what it's about. Those working class voters want universal healthcare. You know, they like Medicaid. They like Medicaid expansion. There isn't any referendum that hasn't passed by a huge amounts uh, in every state that Trump carried. Even in Utah, it, it, the, the working class wants bigger government in addressing the uh, the pharmaceutical companies, the drug companies. So don't. It, it's, it's not a left-right issue now because Democrats haven't dealt with the health care issue, which is the, the heart of the economy. And the reason why you know Trump doesn't win because he's trusted on the economy. They're talking about kind of kind of promoting industry and companies for real people. They're talking about what's happening to their costs and the cost of housing, cost of healthcare, cost of food, and they're getting killed by what's going on right now. Um, the When Democrats speak to those issues, Trump doesn't get the win on the cultural issues. It's when they're not, not hearing what's happening here and how much they were hurting. The midterm elections, the, the 2016 election, was about Obamacare and how expensive healthcare was for these people. And by the way, it was also true for the base. It wasn't just the white working class. You know, urban voters found the, the healthcare costs impossible. You, know, you now had you know huge you know, you know not as premium as the healthcare costs and and penalties, deductibles were extraordinary, made healthcare almost unusable. Such anger at the same time that we, you know, that we, you know, that we, you know, failed to come out of the financial crisis. And so it's not, an, it's not a, a straight ideological choice. And there's really a common experience that's very abroad into the Democratic base that really wants big changes. And that includes the working class too, regardless of race.
0: I, absolutely. I guess my, my question though is, are we discounting in some way the importance of the questions of race racial equality policing that does not um come down so hard on black and brown people in America's cities i mean as we as we get back to talking about all these economic issues stan i think it's incredibly important to note this i just feel like we might be in a different moment in america because a lot of people are saying Actually, this question of how I'm treated because I'm black is way more important than you ever thought it was. Mm-hmm.
1: Absolutely, uh, I mean, there is the fact that in our data, Black Lives Matter is still, by the way, um, you know, gets pr- quite po- uh, not as positive as it was at the beginning of this process uh, because of like uncertainty about what's actually happened on on the street and how it's you know how it's been reported. But right now, if I go to working with white women, they're split evenly. Maximum uh, plus eight on, on Black Lives Matter. Now, how can that be? That can only be if, if this pandemic has had such a huge impact on their consciousness. Um, and and when we and you know when we test, you know what is the strongest way for Democrats to approach this election? It's talking about this pandemic as a as a as a as a huge cri- as a crisis of healthcare and the economy and of racial justice. And of racial justice as central to what Democrats are, but all three are important. It's not one; not they're not choices because racial justice plays out through the economy and through the healthcare system, which right now is killing enormous numbers of people.
0: Well, so so let's talk about the healthcare system, especially in the context of COVID. Uh, famousl,y yeah. you know, Bill Clinton started off his presidency trying to do something on healthcare. It didn't go the way he wanted to. Barack Obama yeah. spends some time uh, working on Obamacare. It turns yeah. into a dirty word, even though a lot more people have health insurance than they than they used to. What exactly do people want when you ask them about this in terms of health care from the American government?
1: Look, I mean, for sure, they don't want to repeal overwhelmingly and intensely. Uh, and the reason why Republicans did so badly in the midterms was because of the attempt to repeal, repeal here. Um They wanted to build on, you know, you know on it. And what angered them the most about it were the high costs. The, you know, the, uh, it just did not have enough money in it um, to really reduce healthcare costs, you know, for working, working people. And so they're actually in some ways angry about it. What they liked was Medicaid expansion. They liked things that were part of it, you know, that the Supreme court, Limited and the Republican governors blocked people from getting. But the Medicaid expansion is a key part, to, and to satisfaction, if you look at if you look at life expectancy and other things, life in rural areas. Just look at the difference in states, you know, that had Medicaid expansion, where a huge portion of the population was covered. Uh, now, people who want healthcare security. They want. They are. They're being killed by the you know by the high by the high costs. But we're, ed- but we're entering a whole you know new world here because the uh, Republicans are on the verge through the courts of repealing it. And, I, and God knows where, what happens after that. You,
0: you mentioned this earlier. What impact do you think Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death has on the election coming up? And, and, and does it mobilize Democrats or Republicans mm-hmm. in some specific way?
1: Um. I was looking at, I thought, you know, the, well, what's not true is that it mobilizes Republicans. There's no evidence that there's been any shift toward the Republicans or an increase of their engagement, you know, because of it. And there was some, some evidence, if you see it, it, you know, in Act Blue with people giving, you know, funding to Democratic candidates that it dramatically increased, you know, giving. Uh, the, but when I look at the you know, at voting, and i you know, and I track it through a, num- a number of ways. I don't see any change in kind of the structure of the race. I mean, and I, like, I think the structure of this race was, which is what I wrote about, you know, in, in my book on uh, rest in peace GOP or RIP uh, GOP, was that you know Trump only got elected, be, you know, because he was able to dominate the Tea Party faction of the Republican Party, but they were only half of the party. Uh, and that he's, you know, driven Republicans out of the is a diminished party, and so while uh, they talk about engagement of Republicans and Democrats, but the Republican party is a much smaller party, you know, than it was. Uh, you know, Trump's approval is still forty-two or forty, you know, three percent, you know, and the that that just tri- and he's nationalized the election around himself, and so we we've been through four years of successively each group becomes more, you know, opposed um to trump first women first immigrants um and and particularly as he tried to use immigration in in the in the midterm election and now around racial justice and you know as you know each you know each each issue has driven the country to be more and more you know anti-trump um and i think that's the shape of the electorate going into the election
0: do do people like joe biden enough to elect him
1: uh yes I mean, he's, you know, he's, he's, it's improved with young people, and that's, that was the particular problem. That, you know, there's been an improvement uh, with younger people. but his vote certainly has gone up uh, dramatically, you know, with millennials and, and, uh, and young people. Um, the convention, Democratic convention, um, played an important part in that. Uh, the, um, you know, the, uh, he's nowhere near, you know, Hillary in terms of unpopularity. You know, he's come through this process and being beat up by a, a, Demo- a Republican invention that was devoted totally to attacking, you know, Biden. The Russians obviously have been, you know, at work to try to, you know, harm his reputation. But it basically has about half the country who like him or and dislike, which is not a bad place to be in a country that's so polarized.
0: Are Are you concerned at all as a as a Democrat that there is enough of a a liberal base in the party now that that doesn't want to show up for Joe Biden in the way that they would have shown up for um, for Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders or someone mm-hmm. who who f- mm-hmm. fit their ideological box better. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I was like, I was deeply concerned about it, and I you know, and I wanted uh, Biden um, to pick Warren um, politically, but also in of terms, policy terms. Uh, but the um, and it was still slow to, you know, to, you know, to consolidate that vote. But in our, in, our, in our latest poll after the Democratic election, so after Sanders, you know, had spoken on, you know, on the first night, uh, you know, we now find that the Sanders voters in the primary are as pro Biden in their vote as Biden votes. Hmm. <laughs> there's like there's not a point of difference between. The percent of, of Sanders voters who are voting for Biden in the general as Biden voters, are. and it was like a fifteen point gap.
0: And that's a big yeah. difference between what we saw in twenty sixteen.
1: Oh, immensely. And I you know I tried, you know, I tried to persuade the you know Clinton campaign at the end that you know that it was that low hanging fruit. The Democrats had not consolidated their own parties, uh, and I couldn't persuade. I couldn't persuade. That's why I didn't get angry about the Green Party, even though they did you know elect Trump. Is because Nora had the ability <laughs> to consolidate those voters, and she didn't. I mean, um, that was a policy choice. I think she would um, uh, didn't want to be dependent on them.
0: Th- there's an awful lot of voters, Democratic voters certainly, who think that climate change is the most important thing in the world right now. I've been covering energy and the environment for years and years, and I still don't think that we talk about it anywhere near enough. How big an issue is that in this election? Do you think to Democratic voters?
1: It's a big issue, um, and I'm you know, I'm stunned by uh, how much it comes up for Democratic voters. It comes right behind health care. Mm. You know, it's, it's it's back you know back, but it's not third, it's not third. <laughs> it's not sixth. Uh, we're you know we're used to it. You know for Democratic voters on why you're voting for you know for you know Biden. You know climate, uh, is, you know is now right behind health care as as the reason to be for him, and he's actually you know when you think about your question about the center I mean, look at what Biden has come out for, you know, since his nomination, you know, in, you know, in particular on climate, uh, which was embraced, you know, by, you know, by, by Warren. And in fact, it looks very much like Warren's plan. Uh, but it's a huge investment um, um, in achieving sustainability.
0: And do you think that Democrats now have coalesced around messages that actually will not only allow them to get elected, but allow them to effectively govern. I mean, really having a, a series of issues that people are going to care about that are going to resonate with the American people. So it's not just maybe Joe Biden wins, but then, you know, it flips back around again in, in another mm-hmm. couple of years.
1: Look, we were a pretty divided party. Uh, the, um, and it, it was part of the reason why, you know, Trump got elected and it was the primary... Because of the pandemic, it was, the primary didn't really get finished. You didn't get to have a, a series of wins, you know, end of the primaries, consolidation of the party before the convention. You know, you didn't have any of that. It didn't happen until the convention. Um, and there, you know, there and there were real differences, policy differences, um, that are you know within the uh, uh, in the party. But I think the um, just the reality of the pandemic and the crisis is just going to. Requires such a big governmental response to deal with the the economy, the huge healthcare crisis, to deal with now the racial disparities that are you know front and center. You know, if you listen to you know Joe Biden when he went to North Carolina, he spoke about the racial disparities as well as the health and economic issues. Uh, the um, and I think the uh, there's going to be a, a bold governmental response because there's no choice. But, I mean, but, we're, we're, yeah.
0: but 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 to but to be clear, Donald Trump isn't Ronald Reagan in his desire to limit the size of government. In, at almost every turn, he has used government in his own way. He's trying to use the federal government in a way that I've never, growing up, never thought a Republican uh, mm. president would. So it's not as, th- as though he's exactly the small government guy here.
1: No, but 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 he's left an economy that is going to be. Have huge, you know, high rate of you know of, of unemployment because he's unwilling to put monies into the cities or do anything to get at a macro level, you know to you know so therefore you, Biden's going to inherit economy that is deeply underperforming that's going to need macro spending. He has kind of Keynesian advisors who are going to be you know pushing that. He has an agenda that includes climate that will now be front and center on how to get the you know economy back. You're going to have a healthcare system that's wrecked, uh, you know. Um, you know, coming out of the Supreme Court decisions, and so it's gonna it's gonna force a pretty radical set of options. If you look at the proposals of Rosa DeLauro for, um, you know, Medicare for America, you know, which is a, an expansion of you know Medicare with automatic you know, enrollment, competes with private insurance, and uh, um, looks pretty close to you know what the Sanders Biden negotiations were on where where you might end up. You might be forced to something like that if you actually have a Supreme Court that throws out the, uh, you know, oddly, expanding Medicare, Medicare existing programs, I assume they can't declare unconstitutional, hmm. um, <laughs> it Just has, you know, as opposed to this new program regulating the market. But the, it may be that it forces a whole set of healthcare options that, you know, weren't thought possible.
0: Since you mentioned Rosa during this whole pandemic, have you guys gotten to spend more time together?
1: <laughs> we sure have. It doesn't mean we get along. It doesn't mean we get along. It's, uh, you know, you know, fortunately, usually we would be competing for, uh, uh, you know, for space. Uh, she's, uh, she's, she's meeting with some people on the appropriations chair and I'm, I'm out of here. And, uh, and, uh, five o'clock. Okay.
0: Well, we'll we'll let you go so that she can get in there and and use the Zoom. Uh, Stanley Greenberg, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Be safe. Stanley Greenberg is a longtime Democratic pollster and strategist. That's all the time we have for Steady Habits this week. Please subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. Thanks to Jess Friedman, Kyle Constable, Bruce Potterman, and Beth Hamilton. Our Steady Beats are provided by George Mastrianis and Dave Swanson, and were recorded at Legend Studios in Avon, Connecticut. I'm John Dankosky, and we'll talk to you soon.